This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the Hill Country Authors Podcast. Not only is the Texas Hill Country the most beautiful place in Texas, but it also has some of the best writers in Texas. On this podcast series, I'm going to explore writers in literally all genres of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I hope you'll join me in this journey. Today, I visit with syndicated columnist John Moore. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And you are in for a real treat today because I am in for a real treat as we're going to visit with John Moore. John is a columnist across Texas and most importantly, in the Kerrville Times. Um, But his remit is much broader than that. So, John, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me on. John, could you tell us uh, where you're from and your professional background? Sure. I was born and raised in a town called Ashdown, Arkansas, which is in the southwest corner of the state. It's just north of Texarkana, about 10, 15 minutes. Um, my background is I started out actually in newspaper in high school. I worked on the high school paper in annual as a photographer. And also in high school, my senior year, I was hired at the local radio station, casting from 79 to about 99. And uh, my degree is in journalism, so I left broadcasting and spent about 20 years working in different areas. I worked in law enforcement. I worked in healthcare, using my degree as a public information officer. And uh, then in the, I guess it was about 2010, the station where I had worked last invited me back to do an oldie show on the weekend. And I did that for about five years. So my total in, in broadcasting is about 25 years. But my first love and my current love is print. I, I like writing. Uh, I'm much the same way. I'm a lawyer by professional training. And although I podcast extensively now, uh, I still love the written word. So uh, anytime I can sit down and write something, I really enjoy it. Um, you, you had a really interesting career uh, kind of throughout East Texas. And for those who may not, be from Texas, uh, sorry for that, that are listening to this podcast, every part of Texas is unique. And I think East Texas is one of the most unique parts. It is uh, generally the oldest by settlement uh, and uh, really has uh, an almost Southern culture. At least that was my impression looking in as someone from Central Texas. But I was wondering if you could give a few words about your thoughts on the culture of East Texas and why you find it so endlessly fascinating. East Texas is unique just as Texas is unique. You know, people have a hard time understanding when they're not from Texas, when you tell them you're going to say Del Rio or El Paso and it's gonna take a couple of days to get there in a car, they have no sense of how big the state of Texas is. Now it's not as big as Alaska, Alaska's huge, but Texas is huge. So consequently, it's much like the rest of the country in that you don't have to go very far before culture becomes different. You have different people who settle in different parts of the state of Texas for different reasons. Here in East Texas, the big draw is medical and research. So there's a lot of people that may not want to live in Dallas, say, or they don't want to live in Houston, but they can live say in Tyler or in Longview, you know, Tyler is now getting a medical school, which is a very big deal. And so with that, you're going to have a lot of very smart 
the culture here, you tend to see things like the symphony and um, the a lot of the performing arts that you may not see if you just go three or four counties north of here. Uh, two other things about East Texas. Uh, one is uh, the flora and fauna, uh, the national forest. Many people don't realize we have as large a national forest system in Texas and in specifically in East Texas as almost any other state. Um, and the second is oil. Now, that was a long time ago when oil got struck, but uh, when I was in college, it was still pumping away. And uh, it, in many ways, informed a lot of the new wealth in East Texas, a lot of uh, the culture that you spoke to, and I think really is a direct line to some of the innovations that East Texas has going for it today. So I was wondering if you might just talk about the piney woods, the woods, the hunting and the fishing, and the legacy maybe of oil. Well, you know, believe it or not, oil is still a thing here. Uh, it's not what it once was, obviously, because you have the Middle East and other places in the world, Russia, that are now drilling. Um, but I'm an elected official as well. I'm also a county commissioner here in Smith County, and I was contacted the other day by an oil company who is doing some fracking, and they needed permission to run a water line. So it's still here. It still does go on but not to the degree that it once did. And obviously it has a lot to do with what the price of a barrel of oil is going for as to how active the drilling is here. You'll see a lot of, if you go to different parts of Smith County, you'll see large numbers of oil rigs that are just mothballed. And the minute the price of oil goes up, they'll be taken out of storage and put back and they'll start drilling again. Um, amazing part of the state is as far as the, the trees and the woods, uh, you can't really see it here. I'm in my wife's sewing room at the moment, but we live on 10 acres. We have a 10 acre homestead and she grows about 80% of the vegetables that we eat. And, um, we make our own electricity where people here are very independent and they like to be self-reliant. And a lot of that includes hunting. Uh, you know, we have a small pond on our property. We keep it stocked so that we have fish. And uh, a lot of people do that here. There's a lot of a lot of self-reliance, which, you know, is not uncommon to the state of Texas, but it's especially common, I think, here. And you'll see um, a lot of groups like Ducks Unlimited, which is a fine organization that I support. You know, people think that everybody that supports Ducks Unlimited is a duck hunter. Not so. Ducks Unlimited is very active in saving the wetlands where the ducks have their habitats. And so there's a lot of that here, and, and it's uh, something to be proud of. Uh, one other thing about East Texas uh, that I frankly don't think it gets enough play is high school football. Mm. When people think of high school football. They used to think of Odessa Permian. Now they might think of one of the big schools outside of Dallas, outside of Austin, Katy, outside of Houston. Well, let me tell you, Friday night in East Texas is a night to celebrate. And I grew up when Earl Campbell was in high school. Mm -hmm. And there were some just incredible teams that came out of Longview, that came out of Tyler, uh, that came out of Texarkana. And um, the rivalries, before we sort of realigned every two or three years, were, were there for years. And I don't want to say you hated those other towns, but you certainly were rivals with them and you played as hard as you could. So I was wondering if you might 
just say a few words about East Texas high school football. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And uh, I actually know Earl Campbell. He still lives here. I know his brother, uh, his family. They're good people. And I've actually had the opportunity to work with Earl on a couple of occasions for promotional purposes. Um, you know, the, the football era that you're talking about actually goes back to when I was also in high school. In 1971, Ashdown Panthers, where I went to high school, had an undefeated season. And from that team, a guy named Ernest Roan was drafted by the NFL and went on to play for the Dolphins. So it's it's not just East Texas. It's I really think it's just this part of the South and even East when you get over into Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and high school football. You, you have to realize in the state of Arkansas, there are no professional sports teams of any kind. So the Razorbacks are everything when it comes to football. And where do the players come from for the Razorbacks and the other college teams? Well, they come from the high school teams. And so it's, it's sort of a farm system in, in many ways to, uh, and, and I don't think you see it as much as you used to where people would be completely dedicated to only playing for Arkansas because they're from Arkansas or Texas, if they're from Texas, people, people go where they want to now. Um, but the, it's still a very big deal here. Uh, you can turn on the radio on a Friday night during football season here and catch pretty much any big game that you want to catch. There's some station covering it. Uh, so my hometown, had a, when I was in high school, we built a 5,000-seat stadium, and you know it was sold out every uh, Friday night. And there was occasionally we had to go over to College Station to play at A&M Stadium uh, when we had really good teams. Um, and it's just... And it's not just the football team. It's everything around it. It's the drill team. It's the cheerleaders. It's the band. It's the anticipation. It's not just the students. It is former high school uh, alumni. And indeed, it's the whole town. And we would see the mayor out, you know, on Friday night uh, to come to our games. And it was just a huge event, especially for team happens to be playing well. Uh, in uh Preparation for this podcast, you told me that uh, you had a four four two convertible. So I yes. have to ask you about that. Uh, sure. One of the gr greatest Oldsmobile ever made. Uh, tell me about your fond remembrances of having a four four two convertible. Well, it actually wasn't that long ago that I had a four four two convertible. Um, you know, when I was in high school in the seventies, you basically either got your grandmother's car or you got whatever car that you could afford to buy and the used car lots back then were full of cars that you know had been something somebody wanted but now they're five six years old so they trade it in they go to the car auction they wind up on the lot so my first car that i ever had in 70 yes i got it in 75 maybe 76 was a 66 mustang which Today, that's a very big deal, but you have to remember Ford made millions of Ford Mustangs. And so a 66 Mustang in 76 was a 10-year-old car. It was just a used car. And there were lots of them, but I loved that car. And the next car I had was a 72 uh, Cutlass Supreme, Olds Cutlass Supreme. And it was a great car, but unfortunately, when I was in college, gasoline reached the point where I couldn't afford to feed it anymore, and I had to trade it off for an economy car. This was in the early, early 80s. Wish I'd never done it. So as I 
you know, progressed in life and the kids got out of the house, I decided I wanted to have some of the cars back that I'd had. So I bought another 66 Mustang. I had a 80 model Corvette. I had a 72 Chevrolet pickup. Um, I had a, um, gosh, what I've, I've had a number of cars, but the one that I always wanted was a 442 convertible. And I found one in Louisiana, probably, I don't know, maybe 2008, 2007, something like that. And I, um, and I bought it. It was the, it was the first car that I, first antique car I ever bought that I didn't have to restore. It was already done. And I kind of felt like I'd arrived at that point, you know, when you could buy something that you didn't have to, not that I didn't have to work on it. If you have an antique car, you're going to work on it. But I, at one point I had that, I had the Corvette, I had the truck and, uh, I just got so busy in my life that I went out one night and I was looking at the car in the garage and I could not remember the last time I'd driven it. And I thought I need a tractor. So, so I liquidated all my antique cars and I bought a tractor. This is the practicality of aging, I guess, uh, which I still have the tractor and I need it. I use it all the time, but yeah, it was a great car. I, I loved the car and I used to drive it in parades and take it to car shows and take trips in it. It was a ton of fun. My first car was a 63 Chevy Bel Air. Oh, wow. All in by cost, $250. So, <laughs> well, my hot rod was a Dodge Super B. So, um, that's a lot of fun, fun with that one in college. Let me turn to your self-professed lifelong love. Mm -hmm. Uh, where do you think that came from or where did it come from? And how do you continue that passion with that same passion today? It actually goes back to Alfred Hitchcock. <clears throat> Pardon me. When I was in, uh, I guess I would have been in late elementary school or junior high school. My grandfather was a blacksmith and he used to go to all of the auctions in the area. And he would have to buy metal or woods, things such as hoe handles and ax handles, plow shears, things like that. And to find those, he would have to go to auctions. And a lot of the auctions where he would find these things were in Oklahoma. And so one Thursday night a month, my sister and I would go with my grandparents to this auction in Broken Bow. And to, to buy our behavior, he would offer us a dollar a piece, which back then was a lot of money. It's a lot of money for a kid for sure, with the idea that we had to behave and when we got to broken bow we could have the dollar we could keep it we could spend it on whatever my sister would always make a beeline to the ice cream shop in the shopping mall there in broken bow and i would go to the bookstore and for 60 cents i could get an alfred hitchcock mystery murder mystery book which had a lot of short stories by a lot of really great writers people you would know today earl hamner jr who created the waltons uh, a lot of science fiction writers and I was fascinated by the fact that these people could, within seconds, paint a picture of what the story was they were telling. And then sometimes in just as few words as one of my newspaper columns, they could tell a story, close the story, and then they would have a twist at the end that you never saw coming. So it fascinated me that that could come out of somebody's head, that they could do that. And uh, so I carried that forward. And then when I was a senior in high school, we had an assignment in Mrs. Trusley's English class, and she said, 
I want you all to make up a story. It can be true, it can be fake, whatever, but you have to do two or three pages, whatever it was. And everybody in the class groaned except me. And I was, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I wrote a story, I turned it in. The next day she asked me to stay after class and I thought I was in trouble. And she said, you have a gift for writing and you need to pursue it. And I got married, I had kids, I didn't do a whole lot with it. But uh, as I got older and I saw my father aging, I thought, you know, all these great stories my father told me about growing up in his father's blacksmith shop and his grandfather's blacksmith shop during the Depression, what it was like to get by during the Depression. I really wanted him to write down these stories, and he just wasn't interested in doing it. So I started a blog when blogs first became a thing. And I would send him stories that I'd written about my childhood, just basically to show him, you know, I can do it, you can do it. Well, unbeknownst to me, the owner of the paper in Tyler, Texas, was reading my blog. And so he had his person call me and say, the owner of the paper would like to reverse publish your blog as a column. Would you let us do that? And I thought, and I said, why? <laughs> and kind of like the same thing my father was saying to me, why? And I thought about it. And I thought, well, if it's in the paper, maybe my dad will think it's a big deal. So I did it. Um, then the next thing I knew, I got a letter from a lady who said she and her husband wanted to buy my books. Well, I didn't have any books. So I thought, well, I'll write a book. So I wrote a book. And still my dad was not moving on this. But one morning... After I'd done all this, a lot of time went by, and at 3.46 one morning, I got an email from my father, and it was his life story. He'd written it, and two weeks later, he died. So the persistence paid off, but if you ask me why I think I write, I think ultimately the reason that God had me do this or gave me the ability was ultimately just to get these stories the life story of my dad from him. Well, uh, it sounded like it worked and it's gone far beyond that. Yeah, kind of has. Kind of has. Yeah, it, it has. The, um, the column, yeah, I never expected to be writing a newspaper column in my 50s. Um, I just, my last column was my 450th column. And if you had asked me in the beginning, would I still be writing at 450 columns? I would have probably told you no. I would have thought I'd run out of stuff to say, but so far I haven't. But um, other newspapers, I guess, saw the column and contacted me, and I'm, I think I'm in 26 or 27 papers now in Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Um, before I ask the next question, I have to stop a minute, though. You said something that really struck me, and it was about going to Oklahoma. And so I'm from Texas, and we think of East Texas, but it's really not East Texas. It's almost those four corners, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, that there are more alike than the rest of those states. And it's not that we don't cross borders here in the United States to go to state from state to state, but uh, the cultures in southwestern, Louis, uh, yeah, southwestern Arkansas, southeastern Oklahoma, northeastern Texas, and northwestern Louisiana it's just 
really kind of one cultural melee. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, I think the litmus test for me is if someone knows what chocolate gravy is, then, <laughs> then they're from my neck of the woods. Um, people ask me, you know, I, I left Arkansas in 80 and moved to, um, actually I'm, I left Arkansas in 87, early 87. I moved to Texarkana, Arkansas in 80 and people ask me all the time. What's it like in Texas? And I say, well, where I live in Texas, it's really no different. It looks the same as where I grew up in Southwest Arkansas. The people are essentially the same. The The morals are the same. Uh, people are very much people of faith here, just like they are where I grew up. And uh, you know, one of the first things you're asked when you move to a town in this area is, where do you go to church? Probably true. A lot of people watching this, probably listening to this, probably know what I'm talking about. We do. We mm -hmm. do. Believe me. Um, well, let me turn to your column now, because that's how I was introduced to you. And as I said, I live in Kerrville, and it's syndicated in the Kerrville Times. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just maybe ask you what were two or three of your favorite columns, and I'll tell you two or three of my favorite columns that you've written. Wow. Like I said, I've done 450 of them. Um I would say the one I wrote about my grandfather's blacksmith shop. Uh, I don't know if you've read that one. Um, the one about S&H green stamps, which was um, how a lot of us, when I was growing up, it's how we got things. You know, we didn't have any money. So if you went to the Piggly Wiggly you got your change, but more important than your change was you got green stamps and you'd save those. And if you think about it, you can still taste the green stamp, licking them and putting them in the books and deciding what you were going to get with them. Um, I guess that one, the, the canning jar quest, you know, my mother collected what were called lightning jars. They were a green canning jar. They weren't clear. And they weren't mason jars or ball jars. They were made by the Atlas Jar Company. And uh, there was a quest that my family went on for two or three years when I was young, trying to find the half pint size, a very small jar. And it was almost this mythical thing. You know, the old people would tell us it existed, but it was like the Holy Grail. Well, does it really exist or is it just a myth? But anyway, it's in that story's in my first book. I've written three books now. And um, most of the articles that are in my books are started out as columns. So until this week, my number one favorite was S&H Green Stamps, because you're absolutely right. Behind the Sears catalog and the Christmas catalog was the S&H Green Stamp catalog for me, mm -hmm. because you had it all year round. You could just wish and gaze. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember the whatever system my mother doled out green stamps to myself and my sister on, but we got enough that after a couple of years, we could generally get something. Uh, so that was a huge deal. And, and she was a, a religious green stamp collector uh, as well. And, and the kid's job, of course, was to put them in the green stamp books for her. Um, but the most recent column, you talked about television channels and how, it was ABC, CBS, and NBC, but the thing that struck me was the movable antenna 
because mm-hmm. we thought we had died and gone to heaven. We got a movable antenna. They didn't even have cable. I think we called it cable back then in our little town, and we got more channels, and we we just and we just loved to move it. The little bar you push, and you could hear it move. Uh, and so, and then I guess number three was you had one column where you referenced breakfast cereals and yeah, Crunch. uh, Frankenberry and Captain Crunch when they came out and, uh, God, to think of the amount of sugar our, my mother put in us, you know, when we didn't need any more energy, uh, absolutely never read the uh, comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, but, uh, Bill Watterson who drew and wrote that strip, he, he summed up breakfast cereal for our our era when he had Calvin eating a cereal called chocolate frosted sugar bombs. <laughs> and that, that really was what we were eating. I mean, it was like cereal with a little bit of flavoring. Right. Right. Uh, so my, my sister ate lucky charms and I ate Captain Crunch. It was, uh, and there's even more, I, I, I really thought we had crossed the cereal line when our, our oldest grandchild, came up to stay with us and I said Ethan what cereal do you want me to get for you because all kids want cereal right he said chocolate Cheerios and I said is that a real thing he said oh yeah it's a real yes sir it's a real thing and sure enough it was a real thing and I thought there's something wrong with chocolate cheer I don't know what it is they shouldn't exist but they do well mine was Tony the Tiger and Frosted Corn Flakes oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, let, uh, let me end with a few uh, questions about uh, your role as a public servant. Sure, you were a county commissioner, and uh, what's the job of a county commissioner in a largely rural county? Well, it's actually the same job in every county because it's defined by the Texas Constitution, and there are 254 counties in the state of Texas, and each county has a commissioner's court, and that is made up of four commissioners, and one county judge. And each commissioner has a precinct, minus precinct two, which is the southeast corner of Smith County. And I am responsible for making sure that there is enough, that that we're taxing at the right rate so that we have enough money, not too much, not too little, to pay for county services, such as mainly roads, bridges, um, and departments. You know, we have a lot of employees in county government here in Smith County. Uh, we're just under a quarter of a million people here in Smith County, which is a, a good-sized county. You have some counties. I think it's, uh, is it Love County? Loving, Loving County, I think, in, uh, in West Texas has 67 residents. So think about that. But they still have a commissioner's court. They have a county judge. And the commissioner's court is responsible for making sure that all county business is handled. The, um, unfortunately, now we are at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or your books, what would be the best place or places they could go? Yeah, I'd love to hear from them. I hear from people all the time. Uh, the website is thecountrywriter.com. And uh, I think there's a link to my books there. I have two books which are called Rite of Passage, W-R-I-T-E, A Southerner's View of Then and Now. And it's about growing up in the South in the 60s and 70s. 
And then my latest book is a book of puns, and it's called Poems for Grown People. And you can uh, find them there. They're also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can just look up my name and uh, write a passage or puns for grown grown people. I've been surprised at how well the pun book has sold. One of people my favorite books growing up was, uh, I think it was Bennett Cerf's uh, Book of Atrocious Puns. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Well, John, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Sure, Tom. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Hill Country Authors Podcast. If you have a book or are an author and like to come on my podcast, please let me know. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. The Hill Country Authors Podcast is available on the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. And we're all great podcasts are played.